0: But in terms of co- like remote work as the new normal, I, I, it's a long list of people coming in at the moment, 60 percent of them going, I just don't want to work from home anymore. So I think there's probably light at the end of the tunnel for a lot of co-working spaces. Welcome to the Going Global podcast, brought to you by Globalization Partners. Hire anyone, anywhere, quickly and easily. Use our AI-driven, automated, fully compliant global employer record platform powered by our in-house worldwide HR experts with 97% customer satisfaction ratings. Globalization partners succeed faster.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Going Global, the podcast where leaders of high growth companies tell us their own stories of going global and building global remote teams. I'm your host, Diego Mendiburu, and remember that you can find all episodes of this show on Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. On today's show, we're going to interview Henry Weaver, head of Community of Fishburners, Australia's largest non-for-profit startup organization. Fishburners is dedicated to the success of its startups by providing the best resources, education, mentoring, and community of like-minded people to connect with and learn from. Fishburners hosts more than 2,000 startup entities who have been part of the operation since it opened. Hello, Henry, and welcome to Going Global. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Henry, let's go back in time. Fishburners was founded in 2011, right? So, yeah. h- how much has the Australian startup scene changed in these years? And what kind of companies or industries have been transformed the most or have flourished the most there? Well, I mean, interestingly,
0: when we started back in April 2011, the ecosystem was almost sort of non-existent. I think there was a, there was a few sort of co-working spaces, probably one that I can think of. But in terms of like Fishburne as being the first tech co-working space, yeah, that was us. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started in April 2011, two guys founded it, um, Mike Casey, who's the founder of Grad Connection. Uh, which recently sold to Seek a couple of years ago. And then Pete Davidson, who was one of the first seed investors in PayPal, got together in a pub in Ultimo, introvert and extrovert. They hit it off and um, the rest is kind of history. But you got to remember when Mike was looking for cheap office space for a startup in Sydney 11 years ago, he couldn't find anything. Mm -hmm. So that's why essentially Fishburners was born and it was really born out of the let's build a community, let's get early stage tech product platforms together and get a critical mass and get them involved together so they can, you know, learn off each other and, and start growing. And that's really the sort of early sort of stage, sort of start of the organization. Since then, look, we've had, we filled that building over a sort of a five-year period with our 133 startups, 330 members, and teams of ones, teams of 15, had plenty of success stories coming through. So some of our biggest ones were koala mattresses, car next door, mad paws premonition. So we've had some uh, some consumer-facing companies come through. We've had some obviously um, B2B companies come through as well. But in terms of uh, types of industry, look, industry agnostic, tech agnostic, it was really just trying to get a bunch of people coming in that were building tech product platform and, and try and get them together so they can all grow.
1: So let's talk about something that is very important and I believe something crucial for an organization such as Fishburners, which is the community. So from what I understand, in order to have a strong entrepreneurship ecosystem, you need, of course, uh, investors willing to put their money to take the risk of supporting entrepreneurs that, of course, have to put the ideas and build successful teams and launch products. But then we have the community, which is this network of contacts that can give support to entrepreneurs, uh, have mentorship sessions with them, and all kinds of connections that can help them grow and be successful, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, community, well, co-workers spaces always have a value add, and that's just people, right? Most people come into fish burners because they're, at the moment sick of working from home and they're looking for increased accountability increased feedback back then it was really about community-based review it's like okay i have this problem there's probably going to be someone in fishburners that is six months ahead of me and can basically help me sort that problem quicker and that was really the the crux of, of why we got a, a lot of people coming in we were very upfront about what fishburners was good at and what fishburners wasn't good at we weren't really concerned about you know being the most flashes of desk spaces but you know work didn't exist in australia at that point so we kind of didn't have that barometer Mm. from our point of view it's just about getting like-minded people together having it relative so rather than you know coming in and there's someone who's about to ipo learning from someone who's about to ipo we wanted people that were sort of six months down the line either one way or the other so they could sort of skills could go up and down that sort of um that ladder and that was really the focus of of early stage fish burners, I think, which is really good.
1: Tell us, how has the ecosystem evolved in terms of how many startups have already pursued international expansion? I mean, do you have several examples of startups that have already gone through the process and become this, you know, like the reference of how an Australian startup should go global and now they are, you know, giving that best practices back to the community?
0: Well, I mean, you've got the two Hail Mary shots. That Australia have had and Alassian and Canberra, and obviously they've led from the front in terms of how they've gone about it, but they're not overnight successes. And I mean, they're supposed to probably tell you that, that a lot of hard work's gone into it. but um, they're probably there the two companies that if you're not in Australia, you've probably heard of heard of those companies. They're the, the unicorns that we have at the moment. You probably add safety culture into that conversation as well now. But from a an Australian point of view, like they're the market isn't big enough here to just stay in Australia if you're looking at, you know, true, you know, globalization and, and, and growth. Like you can't just think about staying in Australia because the market's not big enough. And um, there's what, 24 million people, 25 million people now. I used to say that there were more kangaroos than people. I don't know if that's still true, but it's probably, it's probably not far off. But from a, a day one, a founder, rightly or wrongly, is probably looking at how they, you know look past Australia as a market they're either looking at I mean probably back then it was very much okay I'm, how do I get to America how do I get to San Francisco I think that's changing we're seeing that sentiment change we're seeing more Australian startups focus on Asia I think that's an interesting sort of change over the last 11 12 years of being in the ecosystem but from my point of view like we work with early stage startups where we want to we want them to get it right I think if they're building their MVP. And they're doing it in Australia. This is a really good test market for them to, you know, try out. Good supply and demand levels. You've got a really high education base. And you've got people that are willing um, and have the disposable cash that actually want to, you know, try new things. So I think that's that kind of makeup makes Australia a good market, but it has a, a really low ceiling. And that's where most founders probably, you know, get a little bit hoodwinked by the fact that you know you've got to go global from day one. But I'd much prefer people to be actually perfecting what they're doing here, actually get, you know, the right sort of uh, programs in place, the right processes in place so they can actually scale and then move globally. Um, And that's where we're seeing some companies do that well now in terms of koala mattresses have opened up offices across the world in San Francisco. And we're seeing a number number of companies more recently where we've got plant-based meat company. They've been going Mm -hmm. for the last two years. Um, They're called V 2 Foods. They've raised a lot of money on home soil. But they've just done another round of $77 million, which is going to lead their expansion into China. So I think that's as the ecosystem gets older and gets better and we start having second, third, fourth generations of founders, we're going to see probably a quicker process of globalization and, and actually getting out of the market. Whereas back 10, 11 years ago, it was, okay, this there wasn't that many people to learn from, people to talk to people to sort of engage with.
1: Right? I'm really interested in hearing more about what you just said about you know at the beginning having startups looking more uh, to the u s as a market for expansion, and I guess it's it's obvious why you know it's such a big market and sharing the same language. But you mentioned that that now there are many other startups focusing on Asia. So why is that? What changed or, or what information or or data have they discovered? that has made Asia also quite an attractive market for global expansion for Australian startups? Probably a
0: number of reasons, but off the top of my head, you're looking at like two thirds of the world being in one place like that kind of makes sense. I think then you've got emerging markets where the middle class, if it grows by a percent, basically overtakes the US as an overall market to look at. So I think the opportunity there is huge for a lot of companies. And so if you're a B2C startup or, or any startup really, or a company that has a product that You know, sells into an emerging market. I think they're a market that hasn't been attained yet. I'm looking at the likes of like the middle class in India. That's about to double. So that's a there's huge opportunities in this part of the world. And honestly, it's on your doorstep. And that's something that I think is underrated. That we're you know we are part of Asia Pacific.
1: Yeah, totally. So, uh, from your experience at Fishburners, what are the biggest challenges of Australian startups when planning and executing their international expansion plans? What's the, the things that are more challenging for them right away?
0: Oh, most of the time, they're just not ready for it, categorically, just not ready for it. And I think they they probably need to work out, okay, how do I actually, you know, get as a corner market here? Uh, I think that's probably the biggest sort of bit of feedback that we're sort of giving at the moment, and you know, perfect processes, actually understand. You know, I have a consumer set in Australia. How do I actually get to that consumer set in Australia? Globally, the the bigger opportunities are overseas. So I think that always basically, I mean, I've used the word hoodwink, but yeah, it kind of is like they, they look at the opportunity and go, okay, I'm going to make more money if I if I go and try this in the US. Either that kills the startup very quickly, or they they ride that opportunity. They they meet the right people at the right time. You know, there's that. That thing of who luck, meeting the right person at the right time and being able to jump on that person and, and try and ride that trail. But yeah, there's an element of, I'd much rather we start really focusing on, you know, building out companies here that, you know, are then able to actually, when they do make the move um, to the U.S. or to Asia or to, or to Europe, that they can actually take advantage of that.
1: How do you know that? <laughs> that's, that? For me, probably that's the biggest question as a former entrepreneur too. You know, it's like with all the experience you have working at Fishburners, what is the metric Or that, you know, factor that you suddenly realize one startup has already achieved that would, you know, make you recommend them, okay, it is now time for international expansion. What would be that element that all successful startups have and share that has made their international expansion possible or doable?
0: It's the right time, right place. Like that's unfortunately, I I could say I'd be very rich man if I turned around and said, "Okay, well, it is this one thing that's going to lead your expansion into all markets and you're going to global domination." Like it just doesn't work that way. So I think it's the right time, right place. Being able to be smart enough as a founder to maximize the opportunities that land in front of you, and if that's taking you overseas from Australia, then great, take advantage of those. But I've met plenty of people that have started. Businesses in Australia got a little bit of traction and then migrate straight to the US, but then have come back. So I think there's there's an element of luck and an element of right time, right place, and being able to maximize the opportunity that's in front
1: of you. You mentioned uh, that Australia is a great test market. Why why is that? I mean, what conditions make Australia a good place to test one specific product or service? Uh,
0: highly educated, high disposable income. You know, we're, we're constricted into sort of five major cities like that's that's the kind of perfect hotbed to try and get in front of people
1: yeah yeah i get it and i'm wondering if australians are good early adopters you know if australians are willing to experiment with new products and services from up and coming entrepreneurs
0: Uh, i personally think so i think they're very willing to put the money where their mouth is and try something new but then you're probably in australia there's probably um I mean, there's the same tall poppy syndrome. So you get a lot of people that, you know, they're starting to rise, rise, rise. And we have this thing in, in Australia where you can you want to take the legs underneath them and um, they're getting too big for the boots and all that sort of stuff. So I think it's a, it's an interesting one. I think it depends on circles you're sort of focusing on and hanging around in and the, the industry that you're in. But I think it's as a market in general, it's it's pretty good to, to really sort of get a consumer product out there and start being able to engage with your customers very quickly. I think that's where you're building an mvp you should be talking to your consumers all the time you should be getting as much feedback as possible all all the time and australia is a pretty good place to do that Um, i'd suggest there are a number of countries in the world that are a pretty good place to do that but this is where I'm based, so okay. sort
1: of... One of the things that I believe it is more obvious about Fishburners is how much you value education, you know? So it's a crucial element of your program and your support. So if you could pick one area of expertise that most entrepreneurs lack when starting their business, what would that be?
0: Well, I've actually got a lot of data on this, but I mean, my, my, my fundamental one thing for a founder is like, do they really want it enough? Like, I think everyone likes the idea of being self-employed being a founder hmm. they actually want to put the, the sweat and the, the tears into it and I think that's not for everyone I think there's there's probably an element of like you're kind of born with being an entrepreneur and I think you're born with the mindset of okay I see a problem how do I solve that problem from a more fundamental point of view like I think we have issues here where we've got a lot of founders with ideas but they can't find tech founders build those ideas out that's always a struggle so if someone told that that'd be perfect but I think it's a real yeah it's an interesting it's an interesting conversation I think but there's that real confidence thing I think in Australia and, and in some ways we're a really confident country and confident sort of society so I think uh, from our point of view it's just making sure that we capitalize on it.
1: I'm wondering what kind of educational materials do you give to uh, entrepreneurs and fish burners so they can better understand the challenges of international expansion? Or maybe is it just, you know, like special events or connections with former entrepreneurs, you know, with mentors or, or what kind of resources do you give startups so they can better tackle international expansion?
0: So fishburners does a lot of events, right? And we do a lot of workshops, do a lot of programmatic content. And that's really driven from our founders hub membership um, that we have that's to a lot of people. In terms of how we operate it and look at it, you have like the catch-all, which is our workshops that we run every Thursday. We then have our um, sort of more targeted, specific content where, you know, we'll get 10, 15 founders in a boardroom like this and essentially focus on a, on a specific industry topic, be it, you know, Facebook 101s through to exit strategy, through to, you know, raising money in Asia, raising money in the US or or something like that. And they're a pretty consistent, like once or twice a week, we're running events of that sort of nature. Then you've got a really specific like individual, like I need to be talking to someone who's been there, done that, and I need to be getting advice off them. And that's where our mentorship program comes in. And we've got like 60, 70 mentors at the moment that uh, are involved in the space. And again, it's anything from accounting 101s through to Facebook 101s through to you know UX, UI design. So I think there's, there's a lot of learning and development that, Fishburner members get access to, and it's just about them really opening themselves up to to make use of it. That's that's half the battle. With globalization, what I like doing there is getting the founders that have done it back in to really talk about that process because I think I personally think with globalization, there isn't a one-size-fits-all. Like It's a very unique journey for that startup. It's a very unique way of doing it. And where they've come from and why they're doing it, it could be a different sort of reason. So I think there's, um, what I like doing with some of the, sort of the later stage companies is getting, you know, the CEOs and founders of those companies to come in and actually engage with some of our more high growth companies. Yeah. Um, and I think that is much better than, you know, getting it from a book. I find that, I mean, everyone should read Lean Startup, but that's been around for years. So
1: yeah. Totally. I mean, there's nothing like learning from other people's mistakes or anecdotes, you know, and that really puts you in their shoes. And, and that's the way, you know, probably you'll, yeah. it's more probably that you will avoid doing the same mistake if you hear it from but someone. I mentioned it again in, earlier. It's
0: like that who luck of meeting someone, yeah. and realizing that that is a potential inflection point for your startup. Like someone, someone's termed it who luck. And that makes sense, right? It's jumping on someone who, you know, is going to be the person that helps you or opens up a door and as a founder, you've got to sit there and go, okay, I'm making use of this opportunity that is in front of you. And that, a lot of the time, is the things that lead to
1: expansion overseas, getting, raising more money, opening up a door that gives you more revenue, like that sort of stuff. So this is a weird question, but now that you mentioned this, uh, I, I want to do it. I want to ask it. Do you think extroverts, you know, being an extrovert is one thing that you must have if you're an entrepreneur? Or do, or do you think that is... More likely that startups with a team of extroverts will likely be more successful than a team of more introverts, maybe more focused on programming or technology, but not so willing to go outside and meet people and make these connections?
0: No, not at all. I think that's nothing to do with it. I think the idea that most people want would be get, to get a right balance of team in your founding team. And I think that's probably made up of, you know, an extrovert and introvert, but you've really got to work out. How do you like to be recharged? Like I'm probably an extrovert that recharges like an introvert. Hmm. So I make use of that, right? So I don't know if that I don't know if I buy into founders needing to be having, you know, one being more extroverted versus being more introverted. I think a lot of the time it's like, have they got enough industry specific knowledge in that market to to make use of it? Have they got the right people around in terms of, you know, a tech person, a marketing person around them to create that? Or are they just learning it themselves and just trying to grow? Obviously, that's going to take a bit longer than if they had people that, you know, have those skill sets around them. So, yeah, I think find balance when you do have that founding team and start building out a team culture. Like, But as a an extrovert, isn't going to be more way inclined to, to be an entrepreneur,
1: I don't think. I agree. I agree. So, I mean, we have to talk about the pandemic. There's no way to avoided uh, topic. So how many of the startups in Fishburners right now have pivoted or changed their business plans or strategies due to the pandemic? But I mean, not only because of the pandemic itself and all the social distancing uh, measures that came along, but especially in terms of how the world will look after we're done with the pandemic that definitely has changed a lot of industries. So how many of the startups you're working with have completely changed their business models because of this?
0: Well, I mean, it's interesting, right? Like you look at the travel industry. I mean, you've got STA Global going under. I think what's the other one? Um, another major one. I forget. I forget the name. But like to be honest, in the last month and a half, I've met five founders that are all targeting the travel industry. Hmm. So go figure, right? And I mean, the answer is is because the rebound. It's a level, it's a level playing field now. Yeah. There's an opportunity to arise, and that's usually what happens out of a pandemic, a recession, or something like that. That mm-hmm. People will see the opportunity, and it's whether it's their ability to ex- execute on that opportunity. So, I mean, the pandemic's been interesting. I think what I'm seeing more of is how startups do their business. I think that's an interesting one. We're seeing a hybrid of people being more in the office or less in the office. Some people can work from home, some people can't, and they need to be in an office environment. But in terms of specifics, like I look at, there's a, there's a startup in Australia called Camplify, which is basically um, how you book camping grounds in Australia and, and, and that sort of stuff. So if you want to you know, drive up the coast and stop at several different camping grounds, you would use this platform, right? It was probably really struggling before the pandemic, because you're probably just looking at Airbnb or people going overseas or, or whatever. Now he's probably having a great time because everyone's looking to go camping. Uh, so I think it's it's been an interesting one from, from being in the right industry, making, yeah, being in the right industry that's been, you know, there's a level playing field, there's an opportunity to take advantage of. And we've certainly seen that with uh, some of the startups in Australia for sure.
1: And now the question, of course, is how do you see co working spaces and incubators and accelerators? changing again because of the pandemic especially you know the challenge of creating creating community considering that remote work is now the the new normal yeah well i mean when
0: the height of the pandemic most people said that co-working was dead but then since people are back in the city we've grown five percent five ten percent a month and i think that's probably to the good work of the fishburners team in terms of you know we did transition all of our events to virtual. So we tried to keep people engaged. We then gave four months free to all of our members so they could stay in part of the community. And, you know, we delivered like weekly content and updates and basically tried to not stop. But in terms of co- like remote work as the new normal, I, I, it's a long list of people coming in at the moment, 60, percent of them going, I just don't want to work from home anymore. So I think there's probably light at the end of the tunnel for a lot of co-working spaces. I think co-working spaces in Australia probably got big for their boots in terms of price points and their value add that they thought they had and all that sort of stuff. So I think there's been a good reset from that point of view, which probably makes co-working spaces in Australia a lot more affordable and really gets the people that are providing a value add, are providing content, are providing actual education uh, to the founders that are in it. They're the ones that are rising to the top and they're the ones that are actually, you know, actually have people in their space at the moment, which is, I'm safe to say, I'm pretty happy with where first is at this point.
1: Now, that, that's very interesting. And I understand what you say. I um, Maybe the new normal will, will be more a hybrid approach. And I was speaking to a remote work expert, and, and she mentioned something that is similar to what you just said. that. The younger population is the one more eager to returning to the office to a proper working space because they are tired of, you know, sharing the same internet connection with the whole family, being interrupted, you know, having their own personal space invaded by work. So you are right. I mean, it's not necessarily that you will be working from home all the time, but it is true that this whole pandemic has made us understand that it's possible to work anywhere in the world using, you know, uh, Zoom and your computer and your mobile device, making connections virtually, and choosing if you want to work one day from home, one work in a co-working space, one day maybe you'll just want to work in somebody else's office and make other type of connections. I guess what you're saying is that you were able to adapt to to the sudden you know, social distancing measures that you probably have to apply because of the government rules. But now that things are, you know, more uh, similar to how they were before the pandemic, you'll see something of a mix, uh, that more diverse way of working, right?
0: I mean, answer me this. Like, what happens to junior staff coming out of university? Like, how do you train them in a way that keeps them more included, gets them actually the right advice that they're looking for? I spoke to a, a Google engineer. In Google Australia this week, and he said all the senior engineers are way more productive at home. But the learning gap for all of the junior engineers and the the graduates coming in, they're slower than they would be because they're not next to the senior engineers day in day out. So I think this is actually a fundamental like culture thing. I don't know if it's the cities are dead. I don't think that's going to be. I don't think everyone's going to. You know, in 10 years' time, I think we'll be back to most people working in the in offices and, and engaging with people because. People do need people. We're we're, we're human, right? But uh, yeah, I mean, the fundamental example of, you know, senior devs being very, very, very productive at home versus junior devs taking a long time to get actually up to speed because they're not in the environment with the other devs. Like that's that's a pretty fundamental flaw for a graduate walking into a place like Google at this point.
1: And I also had a conversation with um, one of the partners of Business Incubator and Accelerator here in Mexico City, 500 Startups. They also have, a, obviously, a worldwide office. And one thing he said is that all this, you know, a remote work thing and making Zoom conversations also helps making international connections a bit easier. You know, it is important, obviously, for any uh, accelerator and incubator to, you know, make con- local connections so they can learn from each other. But it also has made probably easier, you know, to you know destroy the barriers and talking to people all over the world in a more accessible way because of the pandemic. Do, do you agree with that? I mean, it's easier for you to help your entrepreneurs to connect with people from all over the world now than it was six months or, or one year ago.
0: For sure, um, I think that's definitely. I think Zoom isn't like a, a last resort anymore, um, and I think probably before the pandemic, it probably was. Most people had a preference of actually engaging with someone face to face. I mean, there are problems, there, there are good things about that. Like you can read body language, you can read understand, okay, is this person engaging? Are we actually hitting it off as, as our know, potential client, potential employees, whatever, right? Whereas I think it's probably quite hard to judge that. And I think very few people are very good at Zoom calls. Like I can definitely say that I'm not a Zoom person, I'm much better face to face or whatever, over a phone, that kind of thing, right? So then you've got to understand your limitations and you probably the more you do it, the better you get at it. But I have a feeling most people are a little zoomed out and that's where we got to with our At Home with Fish Burners program is kind of people are like, okay, this has been great while well, I'm at home, but can we come back in now? Can we start doing a, a hybrid of events and all that sort of stuff?
1: So I have to ask you, um, Henry, you're an entrepreneur yourself, right? I mean, how do you mix your role as head of community of Fishburners with your own business and projects?
0: Badly. Um, (laughs) That's the truth, isn't it? Yeah, look, it's been... Yeah, I mean, Fishburners has given me everything that I needed when I was 21, walking in there. 22, I trained as a... I got a law degree... And then I went traveling and I'd worked in various sort of sales roles or whatever back in the UK, but then sort of came here and and found Fishburners and it kind of give, it's given me every opportunity that I needed it to give me. And I, hopefully I've given back in terms of, you know, growing the place and making it what it is these days, having been here sort of five, six years. It's really hard being sort of full-time, part-time versus running your own startup and it's long nights, it's early mornings, like I was doing stuff at. 10 30 at night last night and then woke up at five and did another three hours this morning and then i've come to work here and then i'm probably going you know, to come back out to the startup this afternoon so it's juggling and that's that's always a an issue and a, and a problem but yeah i wouldn't do it if i didn't enjoy it
1: it is true that if you have someone that has from his own experience you know faced the challenges of uh, being an entrepreneur is very different than being in a business incubator or accelerator where you have people that have never started their own business, right? And so I guess you do have a lot to share with other entrepreneurs because of your own experience as an entrepreneur, right?
0: You know, this is one of my big bugbears of incubators, accelerators, and coworker spaces, not hiring people that have actually founded a business because they don't know. And they won't know until they've actually started one and failed one and done quite well in one. And that's, that's the hard truth. Like, I'm not sure you can teach. If you don't know what it takes to actually really, really grind and it's on your head and it all fails. And I think CEOs and managing directors have that pressure. But at early stage, like just starting something, like if you haven't done it, like it, it is a different world. It really is.
1: Totally, I agree with you. So, last uh, question: Tell us more about the programs that Fishburners runs, but especially about Fem Powered. Yeah, great. Right.
0: So, it's taking female founder startups through a six-month program, um, and hopefully, trying to you know increase increase their traction, increase their revenue, solidify an idea. Maybe they have come in with one idea, worked out that, that probably isn't the right thing to do, and then they pivoted to something that you know was based off of feedback from customers and all that sort of stuff. So. Um, so this is uh, one of our, one of our probably our proudest moments this year, which is great. In the past, we've done a program through the pandemic, and it's been a hybrid. So it's taken ten to twelve startups over. It's like a six-month program in conjunction with Google for Startups, one of our main sponsors, and really sort of burning down and taking them through week to week programmatic content to try and grow their startup. So they're coming into the pandemic with a problem. We want to, we want them to leave with you know a solution that you know a bit of traction, maybe some funding. Two of the startups have actually raised, which is great. So we deem that as a success, and several have gone. and And it's really, um, yeah, it's been a it's a joy to watch them come in, engage with each other, and they've had that. The best thing about accelerators and incubators has always been the cohort mentality, and everyone sort of driving together. And we saw someone get married in the cohort, and it was really nice seeing what they were doing and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I mean. The programmatic content is always something that pushburners really, um, really enjoys doing, and yeah, we've uh, we've seen some good value add and seen some good sort of successes come out of the last program, which is something that we will take back and understand the feedback and understand okay, what can we do better next time and how do we make more successes out of it, and and that's
1: um, that's the key to it all really. Thank you very much, Henry. It was a fantastic conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Cheers. Thank you, Henry. Bye bye. This is the end of today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. And remember that you can find past episodes on Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you are planning to hire a new global team member, Globalization Partners makes it easy to onboard international talent in a matter of days. Go to globalization-partners.com to get started.
0: This is Going Global. Presented by Globalization Partners.